Hi, I'm Robert Polly here with the 7th Avenue Project. Not long ago, I was uh, interviewing the filmmaker Errol Morris. We were discussing his new book about truth and deception in photography. And at one point, we had a little difference of opinion. When I contended that digital technology, like Photoshop, had made it easier to modify and even falsify photographs, to which Errol replied, I disagree with that entirely. I don't think that somehow altering, tampering, you know, or the current term photoshopping an image has anything to do with digital versus chemical photography. No sooner did photography come into existence in the 19th century that people were altering and tampering with photographs. And that's a general, I would say, misconception about photography. Well, uh, let's have that argument just briefly. Um, You know, I'll put my side of it this way. People were uh, doctoring and and mucking around with photographs from the beginning. You're absolutely right. It's just that digital makes it so much easier and makes it so much harder to detect. Um, I I would disagree with that also. I think that people endlessly mucked around with photographs, and those who were good at it did it in ways that made it very difficult for people to detect. Uh, in certain ways, they're easier to detect because we can analyze the algorithms if we have access to certain data. The fact that the photograph has been altered or a raw file has been altered in any way is actually easier for us to to detect. I'm sorry to be persnickety about it. No, no, I, I believe me, I, I like a good argument, and, and I don't want to belabor it. It is possible to do an utterly convincing job of fakery uh, these days in a way that even experts couldn't detect if you do it good. And we went on like that for a little while, eventually agreeing to disagree. But I couldn't stop thinking about the question, and uh, I sought out an expert to shed more light on it. And I found someone who I think is the perfect guy. Uh, I am Hani Fareed, and I am a professor of computer science at Dartmouth College. My area of expertise and specialty is in uh, digital image forensics, and we think about a number of things in this topic, including how you can authenticate uh, an image, whether it's real or not, how you can analyze and enhance a digital media, and most recently, how we can sort of understand both the technical and the social impact of photo retouching. In other words, a digital image detective. That's what some people have called. I wouldn't have used that term myself, but I'm okay with it. Well, I'm going to call him that. Honey Fareed has spent his career studying photo fakery. He's testified about the veracity of photographs in courts of law. He's analyzed famous historical photos to figure out whether they're real or phony. And he's created software to determine whether and how much a photograph has been tampered with. He has a lot of really great stories and insights into the subject. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed talking to him. To kick things off, I asked Hani how he got his start in digital forensics. I'm an applied mathematician by training, and in graduate school I started working in a robotics lab and where we were working on computer vision, which is building sort of vision systems for robots. And I was lucky enough to uh, go to MIT as a postdoc, and I worked in uh, a lab whose focus was on brain and cognitive sciences, where we studied perceptual science. And that really got me interested in sort of image perception and photos and sort of the combination of that and the, the uh, sort of robotic stuff, you know, I just sort of stumbled upon it. And, and honestly, the thing that really sort of tipped it for me, and I remember it very well, was as I was coming to the end of my postdoc, 
I was in the library. This is when we still went to libraries. <laughs> I told you how long ago it was. Uh, I was in the library, and uh, I was just waiting to check out a book, and I, I was standing at the checkout counter, and there was a Federal Rules of Evidence stand sitting there, and I just I literally took an 800-page book, and I opened it up to a random page, and it said, in The Introduction of Photographs into a Court of Law. And I thought, oh, wow, that's sort of interesting, so I started reading about it. And it turns out the law is amazingly lax about what it takes to introduce photographic evidence. And they had this little clause in there that caught my attention, which said, uh, we understand that there's this thing called digital. You have to understand this now 15 years ago. Uh, we know that digital can be manipulated, but we don't really want to make a distinction between photos and digital, so we're going to treat them all the same. So from the point of view of the law, a 35-millimeter negative and a digital image is exactly the same. Wow. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Amazing. And so this was 15 years ago, so it wasn't quite the digital revolution, but it didn't take a genius to figure out that, but this is going to be a problem. And so I started thinking about it uh, then, and about two or three year, years later, I started really making progress on it as a research problem. Wow. It has nothing, though, to do with the fact that you grew up in Rochester, New York, which... For me, is the city I most identify with photography. Yeah, yeah. In fact, my father is a photochemist who spent his years, uh, his entire career at Eastman Kodak as a research chemist. Which is headquartered in Rochester. And headquartered in Rochester. And, you know, it, it's ironic, no matter how far you try to run from your parents, go full <laughs> circle and there you are. That is so interesting. <laughs> and Rochester also has uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, famous for its photography program. Exactly. The Eastman the House. School of uh, Photography, which is also incredibly famous, of course, He's a, a relative to the Eastman Kodak. And, yeah, I mean, it is really the home of photography in many ways. Wow. Uh, well, let's talk about this, this issue that you just raised, uh, the use of digital photography in, in faking and forgery uh, and the ramifications that it has for oh, the law yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and other subjects. Um, of course, it was possible to meddle with images, doctor images, long before computers got involved. Sure. Uh, but sure. what were the and limits there? Yeah, so in fact... Um, what's amazing about the history of photography is that the alterations of photographs go as far back as the invention of photography. From the 1800s, uh, the iconic portrait of Abraham Lincoln is, in fact, a composite of Lincoln's head and Senator Calhoun's body. And, of course... Which, which photograph is this? It's, it's one of these iconic photographs of Abraham Lincoln. If you go to our webpage, you'll actually see it. It's, it's this really beautiful portrait of Lincoln. He's got his hand on a table... And I think it's from the 1800s, and it's a composite. It's actually his head and somebody else's body. And, and your website is? Foreign6.com. Um, That's the company's website where it's now hosting this. We have this thing called Photo Tampering Throughout History. Um, so if you just type Foreign6, the number four spelled out is, is the number, and 6.com, you'll, you'll see these um, images. Great. We'll remind listeners of that again okay. later in the show. But So you have a nice little history there. I haven't seen it yet, I have to confess. Yeah, but... and it's, it's an amazing history from the 1800s to the early 1900s. Of course, Stalin famously airbrushed people who fell out of favor, but almost all the dictators did it. Mao did it, Hitler did it, Castro did it. Everybody altered images uh, in order to alter history. And what's really interesting to me about that is a couple of things. First of all, they were able to do it, which technically, of course, was very hard because this was dark room manipulation. Yeah. They did it fairly well, by the way. But the really cool part about it is why. Why did they do it? And I think that they did it because they understood the power of photographs. They understood that if you can change photographs, you change history. And that is really a testament to the power of photography. And it is also a testament to how important it is 
that we can actually think about and reason about the authenticity of photographs because they are so incredibly powerful. Um, yeah, let's re- sort of remind people that a photograph is really quite different from a painting, a drawing, and other forms of visual representation that existed before it. It's this process in which light hits an object, bounces off of that object, goes into a camera, hits a photosensitive film, and then that is used to make a, a negative. I'm talking about the traditional process. Sure. And, and, then, and then light is passed through that negative onto a photosensitive paper. And at every point on that journey, it's a matter of chemistry and physics. It's not a matter of human manipulation, except sort of at the edges, making things right. lighter and darker, cropping. But by and large... You are looking, when you're looking at a straight-up traditional photograph, you are looking at something that was created, uh, you know, in a sense, by, uh, by nature uh, and, and not really with a lot of human intervention. That's right. I mean, as soon as the human pushes the button on the camera, it's over, right? Yeah. Now, of course, in modern-day camera, as you said, there's a little bit of work going on, yeah. um, some gamma correction and some brightness and maybe some sharpening and... These days, of course, on digital cameras, it's doing face detection and looking for where people are smiling and incredibly sophisticated <laughs> manipulations. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, absolutely. And that, that's sort of what's beautiful about photography is that it's a recording device. I mean, we, we can think of it as sort of an, as an advertising, as an entertainment, um, but, or as you know, family pictures, but really it's meant to record history. And when you think about the role of photography in the media, for example, or in the court of law, um, you think of it as this is proof. This is evidence that something happened. In fact, it's um, if you think about it as this, this sort of transmission via um, via atoms and uh, and photons and things like that from an event long ago to uh, you know a photograph that survives today, it, it is in a sense an artifact of that event or a fossil or or a trace of that event. Right. Um, and, and that's really quite different from a lot of things. Absolutely. It's different than writing. It's different than painting. It's different than almost any medium because it is very, it's by its very nature is meant to record an event. And when suddenly uh, you can alter that reality, not just easily, but I mean, just with an amazing amount of power. I mean, what photo editing allows you to do is not just simple things like, you know, remove a stray hair or crop or Enhance. I mean, you can completely change the reality that was recorded, and suddenly now photography takes on a very different flavor as a result. Now, if we look back at some of the historical fakes um, that you mentioned, including the one of Lincoln and some of those pictures of, say, the Politburo with a now-dead right. member <laughs> removed, right. <laughs> things like that, could you always, an expert like yourself, could you always like hold a magnifying glass up to this thing and say, oh, I can see where they, they made those changes? Yeah, I mean, in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. Um, so we have been, over the last decade at, at Dartmouth in my lab, have been developing techniques to authenticate digital images, or photographs, rather. And the philosophy of how we approach this problem is we don't try to come up with a silver bullet. We don't try to come up with a single technique that says, okay, here's how we're going to do authentication. The way we think about this is we think about the different ways you can alter a photograph. You can take somebody out of a photograph. You can put somebody into a photograph. You can move something. You can make something bigger. You can make something smaller. Yeah. And we think about what are the various geometric and st- statistical and physical properties of the image that make it disrupted along the way, and then how do you measure those and find them? So, for example, one of the things that we're very good at today is analyzing lighting and shadows in, an image, in images. And that's a technique that we can actually use to go back to photographs from the 1800s and the 1900s 
to analyze. And in fact, we used a forensic technique like that to analyze the very famous Lee Harvey Oswald backyard photo. This is the one where he's holding the, the rifle, right? Correct, right. Now, we have other forensic techniques. And, and you guys uh, looked at that, and some people had claimed that it was it was fake, partly because of the right. odd angle at which he seems to be standing and, and all of the that. the shadows, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I have to say, there were very reasonable um, arguments for why the photograph looked fake. Uh, it did look like he was at a strange angle. It did look like the shadows were inconsistent. And what we did is we did a full-blown three-dimensional reconstruction of the scene, the geometry of his body, his face, the lighting, and everything. And it is amazing how correct it is. I mean, down to every tiny little shadow in that image, it's exactly consistent. It doesn't speak, of course, to the overall conspiracy of, all, of, the, of Kennedy assassination, but sure. it does speak to the authenticity of that photograph. Sure. Uh... Um, and and there were people who claimed it was fake and that that was evidence of the, of the conspiracy. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Here's a little personal anecdote. Um, I uh, when I was a young journalist looking into the then new uh, field of digital retouching, I wanted to find out um, how people authenticated photographs. And I called up a guy at Rochester Institute of Technology who, in fact, had also made the same determination uh, as, as as a consultant to the Warren Commission, that he had also yep. uh, judged it to be authentic. And so you revisited it, I guess, sometime later. Yeah, I mean, what was nice is that we were able to revisit it with sort of a fresh set of forensic tools that were not, in fact, available during the Warren Commission. Yeah. So we were able to do fairly sophisticated 3D modeling of the geometry and the lighting in that scene and really address that very specific claim. But you're absolutely right. We are not the first people to claim that they were um, that the photographs were authentic. People want to keep arguing about it. I just felt like we, we, we put an end to that question, and it was a reasonable question. Uh-huh. I think we can move on now. Right, right. Um, so are there cases, though, of, of historic photographs that had been manipulated in the traditional way, in the dark room and by hand retouching and things like that, that you could not really rule on that you are stymied by that you'd look at and say, well, we just can't tell. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it's not just historic photographs, but even modern day photographs. I mean, the field of image forensics is really quite young. I mean, we are less than a decade old, which in science is very young. And while we are good at very many things um, today, particularly with analyzing digital images, using those tools to go back and analyze historic photographs that are typically very grainy, very low resolution, uh, lacking a lot of details, those are hard. The nice thing about today's digital images is they're very high resolution. They have a lot of content, a lot of information, and of course, the more information you have, the easier it is to do a forensic analysis. So it's the equivalent of trying to do DNA matching on the tiniest speck of blood that you that's you know 250 years old. Right. That gets hard to do. So um, you know, of course, the field will progress, and we will get better at doing things and. And, of course, over time, we'll be able to go back and actually look at a broader class of photographs. Now, one reason I wanted to talk to you, Hani, is that I was interviewing um, the filmmaker Errol Morris uh, a short time ago. Uh, his most recent book is about photography and sure. includes some uh, you know, detailed analysis of old photographs to find out you know, some of the truth behind the actual image. And um, he and I had a gentlemanly disagreement in which I essentially asserted that it's easier to fake photographs now, with Photoshop being ubiquitous and all of the tools it brings to the table. Uh, and he said, oh, no, I think it's harder because of all the tools there are that we can use to detect fakes. Um, do you have an opinion on that? And I'm not asking you to really get in the middle of a, no, I a quarrel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan of his. Um, Me too. He and I have chatted over the years also because we have common interest in photography. Um, I, I think I, you know, I would side with, your, with you because... It's 
hard to argue that uh, Photoshop has not made it much, much easier to alter images. So, for example, look at just one of the latest tools that came out in the last version of Photoshop called Content-Aware Filling. Oh, it allows yeah. you to highlight any part of the image and yes. say, delete this, and we will fill it in for you with something that is, that is contextually meaningful. And it is amazing. I mean, a three-year-old can run this thing. It does not take a high level of skill. So I think it, it's, it's unarguable the case that the level of expertise that you need today to make fairly sophisticated alterations to a photograph is nowhere compared to what you need, needed in the darkroom, which was required a huge amount of skill. Um, I was hoping you'd bring up that capability because I saw it demonstrated yeah. uh, a little bit before Adobe released it in, in Photoshop. But it takes the idea of cloning, which is this right. ability to copy a part of a scene uh, and paste it um, elsewhere in the scene, which is a good way to say Photoshop out uh, your former spouse right. from uh, the photograph that, that used to have them in it. You know, that kind of thing. Sure. Or to uh, clone out that old 70s mustache you don't want anybody to see. Right, right. You copy a little bit of the background over this thing, and uh, voila, it's gone. On the, but the problem with cloning is that it's simply duplicating a patch Right. Of the scene, and that can be pretty obvious if you look at it closely. Right, and it requires a little bit of skill. You can't yeah. just you can't just plop something in. You have to feather it properly, <laughs> and it has to you have to adjust for the color and the brightness, and you need a little bit of skill to do that. And by the way, I, I don't want people to think that I've ever photoshopped out an ex spouse or or a mustache. <laughs> or a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done that, but I've, I'm told people do. Um, but this new thing, uh, which I saw demonstrated, takes detailed and uh, fairly complex parts of a scene and doesn't just duplicate them. It, it sort of fills them in in a realistic way. The The example I saw, I think it was sort of a desert landscape, and there was something in the foreground, and they, they essentially uh, copied the background over this area uh, and, and got rid of that object in the foreground, but they didn't merely copy it. It actually filled in the background in a way that was totally realistic with all kinds of variations Absolutely. in the scene. Yeah. I, I could not so believe it when I saw amazing. it. It's amazing, and the underlying algorithms, which actually have come out of a field of um, scientific research called computational photography, yeah. is quite sophisticated. It actually does a combination of a little bit of cloning from different parts of the image, but in a smart way, it does a little bit of synthesis, actually trying to synthesize new parts of the image. Yeah. And it does it in a way that is not always, but, but often very seamless and very well done. So, you know, when you start talking about is it easier or harder, you know, it's certainly true that technology today from sophisticated digital cameras to Photoshop allows you to make very sophisticated fakes with very little effort. It's also, of course, true that the same technology allows us to actually start to detect some of those fakes. Now, which, who's winning that race? I mean, yeah. there's no doubt that Photoshop is winning the race. And, but that, that's always going to be the case <laughs> if you think about the spam, anti-spam, the virus, anti-virus game, the Photoshop, the forensics game. It's always going to be the creation of these things that is easier. It's the very nature of what we do. So we're always going to be playing catch-up. Now, um, if I were a sophisticated forger and I wanted to fool an expert like you, yeah. I I'm guessing that... I would not just use the automated capabilities of Photoshop, but I might go in there and add some sort of manual details that I knew were going to trick you. So I'd make sure the shadows were consistent. I would make sure there's enough variation down at the pixel level that it does not look like it was merely cloned. You know, I'd make it really plausible, you know, in the way that it's arranged, in the way that, say, if it's of a human being, that obviously their their body parts were in all the right places. Right. I'd do things like that. I'd make sure the color right. was absolutely consistent. Right. Um, could I fool you? 
You know, I'm not inclined to answer that question. (laughs) 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 No. So um, the answer is absolutely yes. But here's what's going to happen. Five years ago, it could have been argued that almost any reasonably sophisticated person could make a fake that that would fool the average forensic analyst because we didn't have forensic tools. Yeah. So now what we have done by developing a host of different forensic tools is we've made it so the average person can't do it anymore. And we've pushed, we've raised the bar that says, look, if you want to create a very compelling fake, you've got to be very good at it. And you do have to worry about the shadows and the pixelation and the compression and the color and the noise. And you've got to worry about all of these things. And if you slip up just one place, we're going to catch you. Uh What we're going to do is we're going to make it so that you have to be highly, highly skilled and we're going to make it so it takes a lot of time. Because you've got to go in and make sure you caught every single thing that we do an analysis for. But at the end of the day, yes, you can do it. In fact, I can do it. But it's not nearly as easy as it used to be. And I think that's the best you can hope for as a forensic science field. Now, I think you alluded to this earlier, and uh, you, you gave a clue that I would definitely take advantage of if I were a forger, and it's this. I would not make a beautifully crisp, high-resolution photograph and show you that. I would reduce the amount of information by compressing it, uh, reducing the resolution, uh, maybe printing it out onto uh, paper so there's no longer pixels at all, just inkjet dots. And I'd lose a lot of the the little close detail that would give my fake away. And you'd be stuck looking at something where maybe my fingerprints had effectively been smeared uh, beyond recognition. That's exactly right. And if if I was a forger, that's the first thing that I would do. And... It's also a telltale that something is wrong. If somebody hands me an image that's 300 by 300 pixels, in today's <laughs> modern age when every cheap cell phone has four megapixels, you know something is wrong, right? And um, particularly in, a, in courts of law where you're introducing evidence, I just don't think those things should be acceptable. I mean, there's no good reason today why we should be accepting high, you know, low-resolution, grainy images, right? We live in a highly digital world with very sophisticated cameras and optics, but, yeah, absolutely, that's the way you do it. But now you've immediately raised the warning bell. And you've also touched on one of the areas where the field of forensic, uh, image forensics is going, which is how do you deal with these very low-resolution, low-quality images. And one of the things that we have been doing over the last few years is, in fact, developing forensic techniques that can operate even on those low-resolution images. So, for example, one of the nice things about shadows is they survive. Even yeah. compression, uh, reprinting, resizing, Shadows are everywhere, and of course, if you know to correct them, fine, you can fix it. But if you don't, even at the low res, we can still find them. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, advantage you for now, maybe. <laughs> uh, not for long, though. <laughs> not for long. Have you been asked to, to rule on any um, you know, famous photographs? You know, I've been asked to analyze all kinds of photographs over time. I mean, everything from the Oswald to the Zapruder film to the moon landing images to Obama's birth certificate. Oh, I love it. Wait, let's stop right there. Someone questioned the moon landing images and wanted you to figure out whether they were, were fake sure. or real? Sure. I mean, people have been claiming for, well, since we landed on the moon, <laughs> or not, uh, that the moon landing images, and people have very sophisticated theories as to why it's a fake, and the shadows are wrong, and the shadows are not wrong. And are, are we talking about the really grainy images caught on the, the television screen, or are we talking about the... No, no, the, 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 real, the real ones, the real ones that NASA released. Taken by, I think, a Hasselblad, if I remember right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, you know... I, I sort of dove into Oswald images because I thought that there was something attractive about the argument of what was wrong with them, which is they made a very concrete arguments about the shadows. Yeah. 
And I, I like that. I mean, as a scientist, I, like a, I don't like an argument is something's wrong. I like an argument is tell me what's wrong, and then let's, fi- let's figure out a way to determine if you're right or not. Yeah. And, you know, when we went, I, I have to say, I went into that analysis really with an open mind. I really wanted to understand what was going on. And we found that everything was consistent, and I thought this would put to rest an open question, but it didn't. What ended up happening is everybody accused me, and I'm not kidding you, of being part of the conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Conspiracies never die, dude. Exactly, because they don't want facts. I mean, that's not the point, and that's what I learned, is that conspiracies are not about facts. It's about you have a story that you've told yourself, and... Anything that is consistent with that story is fine, and everything, anything that isn't, well, it's part of the conspiracy, which makes it beautiful. It's a beautifully clear story. <laughs> so I just decided not really to dive into these things anymore because it just seemed, frankly, like more trouble than it was worth. But how about discrediting, say, uh, scandalous photographs of celebrities or politicians and things like that? Sure. I mean, I've done a lot of uh, civil and criminal cases um, where the authenticity of photographs has been called into question. I've done cases infidelity cases where one spouse accuses another one and there's a photograph. Um, and it's, uh, I've done medical malpractice cases where uh, patients um, claim that doctors altered x-rays um, or mammograms or fMRI images. Um, I've done cases uh, involving plastic surgeons where um, um, uh, uh, disgruntled uh, defendants claim that the, the plastic surgeon altered the, the before photograph. Oh, no, really? Wow. I've done scientific misconduct cases where scientists are accused of altering photographs and scientific publications, um, essentially defrauding um, the, the results. And really, it, it spreads so many different areas. And it is, it is fascinating how much we as a society have come to rely on photographs, whether it's in the legal system, um, whether it's in the media, whether it's in entertainment, whether it's in e-commerce, and just you know, online dating. I mean, I can't tell you how many people you send me emails saying, I'm going to meet this person. Is the photo real? Oh, my God. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's amazing how little, you know, and what's really, here's something that is really interesting is I would say 10 years ago, even though we didn't have good reason to, we probably trusted photographs reasonably well. I don't, this whole notion of Photoshop wasn't really in yeah. the psyche as much as it is today. Yeah, yeah. And I think we were maybe overly trusting of photographs. And I think today we have the opposite problem, is that we have this knee-jerk reaction. So whenever somebody comes up with an amazing photograph, and I've seen this now even in, in, in the, the Hollywood stars, there's, there's a, a, an incriminating photograph, oh, it's been Photoshopped. Um, a politician has done something wrong. I've been hacked. It's, been, it's Photoshopped. Um, also, in you know, these, these amazing National Geographic and nature photographers make these incredible shots. Yeah. You're like, no, no way it's real. And, of course, sometimes they're right. There have been amazingly scandalous examples of where award-winning nature photographers completely altered, doctored the photographs. And in other cases, it's an amazing shot. Yeah. So this is this very strange world we're in now where we, we, don't, we don't have a reason about it. And the hope, of course, is that the forensic science can bring some sort of rational and quantitative reasoning to this. Well, well, you mentioned that when you started 15 years ago, the, the laws really had not fully taken account of the power of digital uh, retouching. That's correct. Uh, have they yet? No, they still have not. They, they're still behind. The law, of course, moves very, very slowly. In fact, it's even worse than that. So for, I'll give you one example. Uh, child pornography in this country is illegal. Yeah. So what that means is that images of um, people under the age of 18 involved in sexual acts is illegal. Right. What's interesting about why it's illegal is it, it is not, was not made illegal because for moral reasons. We didn't, people didn't say this is morally reprehensible. They said... Uh, 
the creation of child pornography involves children under the age of 18 involved in sexual acts, and we want to protect children from this. Okay, so it was really meant to be for child protection. Let's make it clear. You mean that it wasn't because the image itself was immoral. It was because the, the acts that were necessary to produce that image exactly. were, was, were, were immoral. Child. Yes, were right. harmful, yeah. Okay, so uh, along comes Congress with all good intentions and wants to amend the child pornography laws to include uh, computer-generated images of children. And right. by computer-generated, I mean whole cloth computer-generated, think Pixar, Shrek, things of that sort. Yeah, yeah. Right? Now, what was interesting about that is, and again, I think they were good-intentioned, is that it really stretched the boundaries of the law because those images do not involve an actual child, but you are outlawing them because you find them morally reprehensible. Now, of course, uh, that law was challenged, and the Supreme Court in the early 90s, I think, or mid-90s, overturned the law saying that it was overly... Um, broad and infringed on First Amendment. Now, here's the interesting thing that happened. Defendants accused of possessing, producing, distributing child pornography said it's computer generated. And if it's computer generated, it's protected speech. You can't throw me in jail. Wow. And now what happened is the burden of proof shifted to prosecutors who now not only have to prove they had the photographs, that they knew what they were doing, that they were trading or distributing or producing, but that they were actually real people. Yeah. And suddenly, prosecuting child pornography became incredibly difficult. And this is an example of where, again, I think both Congress misstepped and I think the Supreme Court misstepped. So I think both of them, as bodies, misunderstood the technology. And if you go back and you read the laws, as any reasonable technologist um, understanding what the technology is, is they clearly missed the point of all of this. Um, and so here we are in this very weird state now where computer-generated child pornography is protected. It's protected speech. And it suddenly has gotten to be very hard to prosecute these crimes. And Congress has tried to respond to it, and now we have this big mess because the federal and the state are inconsistent, and it's very hard to know, you know where these things lie. Wow. We were talking up until this point about the attempt to prove that purportedly real images were fakes produced by, by digital manipulation. Now right. we're talking about the exact opposite exactly. of um, images that may be real, but, but people contending that they're actually fakes and, and thus getting off the hook legally. Exactly. And, and, and can they make a strong case uh, even with images that maybe did involve real subjects? You know, it, it depends on the, on the attorneys. If you yeah. have a very good defense attorney, they can make a hell of an argument. Um, and if the prosecutor is not very technically savvy and they don't have the right experts lined up, they have made the case. I've seen people get off on these cases. Um, and the, jury, the juries, of course, you know, they're not as sophisticated as maybe we would want them to be. Understandably so. They're not technologists. They're not experts in this field. Um, and it's gotten very difficult. And, you know, it's not just that. So one of the, here's a very common theme I've been seeing over the last few years when defendants are um, being charged in criminal cases and FBI or the police have either video recordings, uh, digital images, or audio recordings of them engaged in, let's say, trafficking narcotics, the defendant is saying, the police are framing me and those are altered. I didn't do that. And they, they, they digitally manipulated that to make it look like I was doing it. And I have seen juries buy into it. Um, in certain jurisdictions where the police are not trusted, the jury's like, I don't trust the police. Who knows what they could do? Yeah. And, of course, Jurors watch a lot of television, they watch a lot of movies, they see very sophisticated <laughs> things that may or may not be physically possible today or technologically yeah. possible. And it holds water in some cases. And so it's gotten very complicated in the courts. 
Wow. When you testify as an expert in a court case, do you, in the end, uh, come out and say, this photo is fake, this photo is real? Or do you say, there's a high probability yeah. that this f- photograph was faked or yeah. was, is real? Yeah. So those two cases are, yeah, I, so I, you know, I'm a scientist. And they, even though the lawyers want you to say 100%, there is no doubt, I would never say that in the court of law. And you don't have to. I mean, you know, the, the great thing about experts is that we don't have to tell you there is, there, what the definitive answer is, but we have to tell you what we think right. and what the likelihood is, and then you get to factor that in with all of the other, uh, other evidence in the, in the trial. Now, there, there is an interesting asymmetry with forensics. So when we find traces of tampering, it is usually fairly compelling, right? right. So a shadow is inconsistent. Yeah. Um, the, you find cloned regions in the image. Usually that is very compelling um, evidence. Now, when we don't find evidence of tampering, that's a very different story. Yeah. Because you can't really prove the negative. So exactly. really what you can say is, look, we looked, the, the lighting is consistent, the shadows are consistent, the, the compression in the JPEG is consistent, the noise in, in, from the sensor is consistent. Um, there's no cloning. There's no this, there's no that. So one of two things, this is real or it's a really good fake. Wow. And I can't distinguish between those. Yeah. That's the very nature of authentication. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were in the news just this week because of some software that you developed with uh, a Ph.D. Uh, student at, at Dartmouth where you teach. His name is Eric Key. Um, tell me about this software. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so Eric and I have been working on this for the last two years. Uh, and we were, in fact, motivated by legislation in the U.K. that was considering mandating the labeling of extreme photo-retouched images in advertising and fashion magazines. And that legislation itself was motivated by the significant body of literature that is linking eating disorders and body dissatisfaction with overexposure, overexposure to unrealistic images. Right. And one of the criticisms of the legislation was that um, this idea of a label of retouched was a, was a terribly blunt instrument because it did not make the distinction between simple manipulations like color correction, cropping, increasing the contrast, and shaving off 30% of body mass <laughs> and removing all the wrinkles from a person. And those, of course, are, are very different things, although they are both, strictly speaking, photo-retouching. Mm-hmm. And we thought that was a good argument. And so um, Eric and I set out to do the following. We wanted to have a more surgical way of uh, labeling a photograph. That is, we wanted to be able to distinguish between fairly innocuous manipulations and those that really altered the fundamental appearance of a person. And we felt like, first of all, this would be a very cool thing if we could do it. And also is that from a legislative point of view, it was a more reasonable way of legislating a labeling system. Right. So here's how we did it. Um, there's sort of two parts to it. And the most important thing first is that um, we require having both the original image and the retouched image. So this, of course, immediately limits the scope of how this technique can be worked. So you, you need a before and an after. We need a before and after. So this means that, for example, if there's legislation, then um, companies that want to publish photographs have to supply both the original and the retouched. Um, or if you wanted to do it voluntarily, uh, there are many companies now that have, you know, quote-unquote, real beauty campaigns where they, they are essentially touting the fact that they do not do photo retouching. So I think in, in situations like that where you have the before and after, that's where this technology would be applicable. And the basic idea is twofold. The first is we model the types of manipulation that we know photo retouchers do to images, so how they change the shape of the body 
how they change the color and the texture of the skin. We can model that mathematically. And what comes out of that mathematical modeling is essentially a summary statistics, eight different statistics that describe the extent of the photo manipulation. Now, what those numbers don't tell you is perceptually how different does the person look. That's a hard question for a mathematician to answer. So we decided, let's not answer it. Let's ask people to answer it. So we collected somewhere on the order of 450 different before-after images with different degrees of photo retouching. And we asked um, human observers to rate them on a scale of one to five. One is person basically looks the same. Five, person looks totally different. And we used a crowdsourcing um, um, software that, that you know, basically uses people from all over the world, different ages, different genders, well, both of them at least, um, and huge diversity in culture. And we collected a huge amount of data for each of these images, and then we said, okay, look, now we know how people will perceive these images. We know what the mathematics say, and let's learn a mapping between those two so that the mathematics can predict the perceptual judgment. And what that means is that we can now take images that have been retouched, we can mathematically model how they've been altered, and then predict how human observers would respond to them. <laughs> Well, you, you've accomplished uh, several remarkable feats uh, <laughs> in one fell swoop there. Um, you've taken, uh, first of all, a way of sort of grading the amount of change, and then you've managed to somehow algorithmatize what would normally be a subjective judgment, like, whoa, that's, that's a right. huge change. Well, that's a small change. Right. And, and that's uh, what we wanted to do. We, wanted to, we didn't want it to be subjective, because then that's yeah. when publishers would, and rightfully so, would complain. Yeah. And, and the ultimate reason for this, again, is that, there are people out there saying Madison Avenue has been making over people uh, in their ads uh, digitally in a way that has now battered us with all these perfect bodies, and it's really messing people's heads up, right? Absolutely. And if you look, you know, we reviewed the, the body of literature on this, and it is overwhelming. I mean, somewhere on the order of two-thirds of women um, say that when they look at fashion magazines or advertisements, they feel bad about themselves. Something like 30% of women have eating disorders because, at least in part, this overexposure. And, of course, the real problem is not just the photo retouching, but it's the, it's the extreme photo retouching. It's the creation of people who are physically impossible, the elongated necks, the big eyes, the complete absence of any fat or wrinkles or stray hairs on the body, the flawless uh, shape of the, the bust, the hips, the legs. It's literally physically impossible people. But it's, of course, done in such a sophisticated way that we don't think it's physically impossible, and we see it. And that, and therein lies the rub, is that it really does distort your sense of reality. And by the way, this is both for men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, adults. It really, as far as the literature is saying, is affecting everybody. So there are those who, who want to take your software, which grades the amount of distortion of cosmetic, you know, sort of remaking that's been applied and actually have that, you know, be part of a kind of truth in advertising policy. Advertisers have to say, you're looking at this beautiful, busty woman. Well, guess what? She's been uh, changed to this extent, right? There right, are people exactly. Who... And you know, so, for example, in the U.K., there's something now called the Advertising Standards Association, which monitors truth in advertising, um, through, and particularly through photographs. And they have started to outright ban advertisements in the U.K. saying this is false advertising. Wow. So it's one thing in a fashion magazine where the fashion magazines are creating fantasies for their readers. That's very different, of course, than advertisers saying, hey, we have a beauty product that will make you look like this. 
and this is simply the result of Photoshop, not the beauty product. That is false advertising. Uh-huh. Now, I'm somewhat agnostic um, and even, frankly, on the fence about legislating this issue. Yeah. Right? Um, I'm a technologist, and what I would like to see is that if you are going to consider legislation and if we are going to have a dialogue about this, let's do it in a way that's sensible. Um, we have a lot of examples of well-meaning legislators rushing into these things with knee-jerk reactions and either making it worse or doing nothing or not being effective. So I think we should talk about it. I think we should have a dialogue about it, and I think a lot of people should be at the table to talk about it to figure out, you know, how do we pull back a little bit? I don't want to tell publishers and advertisers you can't retouch your photos, but they have to start listening to the public. Is that people are tired of this extreme, over-the-top retouching, and I think that there's a good reason to be tired of it. Hmm. Um, you know, it seems to me that. Long before you got into the game, uh, the tabloids have been doing their best to uh, correct the situation by, uh, you know, offering an antidote to those idealized images of celebrities with the most unflattering photos yeah. imaginable. And I think that's just <laughs> the other extreme, right? It's just, they've gone to the other extreme, which I don't have, frankly, a lot of patience for either. And frankly, it wouldn't surprise me if they're altering the photographs to make them look worse. Uglier. Yeah, that's what I was going right? to say. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I think that we just have to sort of rein in a little bit. You know how we treat this, and it gets back to what we were talking about earlier about this notion, this very notion of the essence of photography as as a, as a means of recording. And suddenly, that we don't live in that world anymore. But but we haven't quite figured out how to reason about these things because they still look and feel like photographs, but they're really not anymore. They're they're somewhere between art and photographs, but they're not really you know sort of labeled as such, and they're. And we don't sort of, I don't think we know how to reason about it, and that's what makes things so complicated. You know, I've long wanted to ask an expert uh, this question. Maybe you have the answer. Those of us who grew up with photographs as being this very authentic, sort of faithful uh, yeah. representation of reality, the instant we see something that looks like a photograph, we sort of trust it, and, and there's something instantaneously different about looking at it than there is uh, about looking at, say, a drawing or a sketch or yeah. a painting. Instantaneously. I mean, it's yeah. deep in the perception that this is like a window on reality. Yeah. Now, the question I have is, do all human beings respond that way? Is that an automatic response, or is that something that we are acculturated to to, to, to feel, to perceive? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, I, I don't know the answer to it, but I'll give you my intuition. Okay. Uh, in fact, there are people who study the perception of photographs, and they, they may be good people to talk to. Here's my sense, by the way, is that it, it is sort of fundamental to who we are because of the nature of visual processing, right? We are incredibly visual um, beings. We get a huge amount of visual information on a day-to-day -day basis, and by the time you're even a few years old, you, you've been, your brain is just you know, massive amounts of information, by some measures, 25% of the brain is responsible for visual processing, which is phenomenal if you think about all the things your brain has to do. 25% is dedicated to perception. Yeah. And there is something very, very special about visual images, and we can do these amazing things with visual images. We can flash images up for fractions of a second, and you can recognize a person in it. Um, we are, you know, the, the brain is amazing at processing, and that's, of course, from, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, we have you know, develop neural circuitry that is very good at processing images. And I think photographs simply are sort of tapping into that mechanism, which is a little bit different than art um, and, um, and drawings. So uh, if, if your hunch is right, maybe showing some non-technological people who've never seen a photograph, that they might instantaneously respond to it differently and right. not think. And, and I, think, I think I've seen these um, 
studies, but I just I don't have my finger on, on, on the names of them. But I, I'll try to dig them up and maybe send them to you if I can find them. Yeah, that'd be cool. So you are currently, um, among other things, working with Adobe itself. Um, we're, we're, I'm actually working with a former uh, Adobe exec, uh, Kevin Connor. He was the VP of digital imaging. He oversaw all digital imaging at Adobe, including uh, Photoshop. And uh, Kevin left Adobe earlier this year. And he and I have known each other for years because I've done consulting work for Adobe. And I, I just reached, I reached out to him just to ask him something. I, I thought he was still at Adobe. And he told me he wasn't there anymore. And we got talking. And, um, you know, I had been sort of kicking around the idea of trying to commercialize some of the forensics work so we can actually make it available to people to use and get it out of the lab. And Kevin was looking for the next thing. And he'd always really liked our work. And, of course, he, you know, he's, he's amazing because he's been thinking about sort of the other side of the coin for a long time um, from the Photoshop. And we paired up uh, about six months ago. We started a company called Four and Six, which is, of course, a play on forensics. Oh. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, we are uh, developing a, a suite of forensic tools. Uh, we hope to have the first one to market in March of next year um, and have plans, of course, to sort of bring the last decade of research in my lab to, to market and it's great working with somebody, first of all, who knows so much about software, because you know, I don't, but also thinks about the, the other side of it, the imaging side and the, the manipulation side, and I think about the forensic side. And I think that, that combination is very powerful. Um, so forensic tools for who? Um, two primary audiences to begin with will be law enforcement. Um, we see that as sort of a huge need. And I can tell you just from my work in, in, in um, consulting and working with law enforcement agencies, there's a huge need in law enforcement. Number two is the media, uh, the Associated Presses, Reuters, news agencies, print media. Um, and then where we think there's, there's a sort of a small but growing need is in the e-commerce world. So let me give you a couple of examples of that. If you've been in the fender bender recently, you know that when you go to the mechanic, an insurance agent doesn't come out to look at the damage. The mechanic takes pictures of the damage and sends them to the insurance company. Sure. And what insurance company, I, I'm told, um, have, have been finding is that they are seeing small but troubling amount of fraud in the photographs. So that is, mechanics, uh, people who have damage to their house, are altering the photographs to make it look like there's more damage, collecting a big check, making Bigger a settlement. there, yeah. walking away with the difference. Now, even if that's only a fraction of the percent, you're still talking about billions of dollars in fraud. Uh, the Ebays, the PayPals, I mean, all these companies now that are global in reach have to do things like authentication, and they rely on digital images, um, digital media, to um, verify identity or a product that's being sold. And so all of a sudden, um, online, you have the need to authenticate. Um, you have online competitions. There's a, a, a global, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, a U.S.-based fishing competition where you can fish anywhere you want in the country, <laughs> catch a fish, take a picture, and send it, and the biggest fish that is caught that day anywhere in the country wins. And it's the proverbial, isn't it just great? Don't you just love that? Oh, well, I'm amazed that any contest would, would, would be based on a, on a photograph. It's so easy to fake that. But I mean, get a fake ruler, right? Get a fake happening. tape measure. It's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. You know, we think that more and more we're going to see a need in that. And, of course, there's a growing consumer end need, too. People just get photographs. They, 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 they just, they, there's, you know, it's just sometimes it's curiosity. Often it's things like civil litigation. There's disputes with neighbors. I mean, all kinds of things where the need to prove authenticity of photographs is coming into play. And, and does the, the software that you are working on, uh, ideally, does it sort of just spit out, say, a number saying 55% chance of tampering, something like that? 
No. Um, <laughs> I mean, not yet. I mean, maybe we'll get there one day. But, and that's why we're sort of slowly growing the market, to f- starting with fairly sophisticated forensic analysts and law enforcement media outlets. And the consumer end, of course, will have to get a little bit more um, automated. But what we really want to be in the business of doing is providing information to forensic analysts. Um, and that information can be, here are some anomalies that we observe. Um, we think it's in any authentication game, it is dangerous to try to put a slap a number on it. That's too simplistic. These things are much more complicated and require more nuanced and subtle views of things. So some of the techniques that we have are fairly definitive. Um, the first technique, for example, is something that measures some very um, nice properties of how JPEG images are created inside of cameras. And when they are inconsistent, something is clearly very wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can actually say that fairly definitively. Mm-hmm. Um, other tools like those based on shadows and lighting and cloning require a more nuanced and subtle interpretation. Right, right. Um, if we take your job to be uh, the discovery of fakes versus real McCoys, then in a sense you are working against, racing against Adobe, because, I mean, their motive is not to help forgers, but their motive is to make photography infinitely flexible, to allow you to do anything you want to do with photography. Do yeah. you see yourselves as kind of um, rivals or, or yeah. adversaries? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I, I have been, just for full disclosure, um, Adobe has actually been very generously funding my lab for the last six years now, uh-huh. in part. And in part, by the way, I mean, I think they like the work we do and, and, they, and they like um, um, the, the, the body of, of research we do, we're doing. But also, it, I think, was in part in response to a feeling of, hey, look, our products are actually being used in ways that, you know, we would rather not. Uh-huh. And maybe we should actually be somewhat, we should be good corporate citizens and do something about supporting the science to help counter some of those effects. I mean, that was my sense from talking to some of the corporate um, leaders in the companies, that there was really a sense of responsibility, and I, I had a great deal of respect for that. If you would ask me who is my biggest um, concern right now, yeah. I would say they are smartphones and digital cameras. Uh-huh. Those are getting so sophisticated now in what they can do on board. Yeah. See, once you go off board, off chip, and yeah. you are in Photoshop, you know, I have a chance. Yes. But if you are doing the manipulations, you know, on your smartphone or on your digital camera, now it's going to get harder and harder for me to, 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 to authenticate. There, so there, there is no original benefits. image at all at that point. The original image is itself... Exactly. I mean, what's, what's recorded at that point? Yeah, yeah. That whole notion is gone now. And so that's where things are really going to start to get complicated. Now... For people who have an interest in proving that their photography is real, I mean, obviously for for people who don't care, uh, there'd be no reason to do this. But people who really, really want to say, look, this thing is verified. Right. um, Are there technologies that can embed, say, um, you know, a watermark or some kind of stamp of authenticity when the photograph is taken? Yeah, it's a great question. There are. There's there's a, a field of authentication called digital watermarking. Um, and the way this technology works is very similar to the way um, watermarks and currency work. So you, if you hold up your $20 bill up to the light, you'll see all yeah. the watermarks, you know, the, the threads and the, 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 the markings. So digital watermarks are very simple. Um, it's a technology that is essentially embedded into the camera. So the chip that's actually doing the recording not only records the pattern of light that strikes it, but also sort of intermixes with that a watermark that is imperceptible, but something that can be measured. Now, for that to work, of course, you have to have that integrated into the chip. And there are a handful of cameras out there. I'm, I think I'm pretty sure Canon has one. 
Um, although, of course, some hacker figured out how to undo it, so <laughs> the security of it is questionable. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that is a reasonable thing. And I have actually encouraged um, organizations such as the FBI to use those types of cameras um, to... Um, avoid being accused of altering evidence. Exactly. Now, yeah. the problem is those are those, the, the one that I know of is a fairly high on camera, and, and most of law enforcement use point and shoots because they're convenient and they're easy to use. Uh-huh. Um, and until there is a universal standard um, that you know everybody adopts and is in every chip, it's not really a technology that is going to be widespread. And frankly, that's why the work that we do. It doesn't assume anything like that is so important because we just aren't there yet, and there isn't even a movement to get, get us there anytime soon. Uh-huh. Well, after all these years of, of getting so deeply into uh, you know, the details uh, of digital images and the ways they can be manipulated, how do you respond to photographs just in your uh, non-work life, you know, just <laughs> casual photographs? You know, it's funny. One of my favorite things to do is to just go to the bookstore and look at magazine covers. <laughs> um, I learn a lot because, you know, I love great photo retouchers um, because, you know, a lot of the forensic techniques that I've developed, in fact, have been inspired by really good fakes where I just spent a lot of time looking at them trying to figure out how did they do what they did. And I'm like, oh, I see what they did. Hey, I can model that mathematically, and now I can reverse engineer that and I can detect that manipulation. So it is, it is you know, it is hard to look at photographs without getting a little obsessed. So. You know, these days I'm really working a lot on shadows. I'm totally obsessed with shadows. I mean, this is all I, I care about in photographs. I don't even look at the images anymore. I just look at the cast shadows. And so it does sort of skew the way you look at these things a little bit. I imagine the way, uh, for example, a radio producer, when they listen to something, or a TV producer, when they watch TV, you know, you're, you're, you're so interested now in how things were done as opposed to what is actually being done. Absolutely. In fact, I can't really listen like a normal listener to radio at all. Exactly. Exactly. I hear the gears turning the whole time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of a curse, to be honest. So you've been, you've been, um, you, you say you've been inspired by the best, the best uh, retouchers, the best fakers. Who are the best? You know, it's a really good question. There was this, and I'm blanking on his name, and I'm sorry about this. There was a great article in the New Yorker a few years back about. You know, this guy who is considered to be one of the great photo retouchers. And it was a fascinating article and sort of a look into this sort of field of retouching. And unfortunately, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, um, have you ever been asked to examine a, a painting and, and to judge whether the, the, uh, the painter did a good job of representing reality? It's a very good question. Um, yeah, we have. And in fact, we, there, there's fundamentally, there is no reason why we can't use some of the forensic techniques, techniques to analyze paintings. And in fact, we have. And one of the very interesting things about artists is whether they know it or not, they cheat physics and geometry, um, either for aesthetic purposes or because, you know, it's just really hard to sort of capture with the naked eye the perfect physics and geometry. And what's really cool about that, and we and other people have studied this, um, there's a, a great perceptual scientist at Harvard named Patrick Kavanaugh who's done a lot of work in analyzing paintings for um, sort of the cheats of physics and geometry. And one of the things that they leverage is the fact that our eyes, our visual system, which is really amazing in some regards, fails to observe really glaring inconsistencies in photos and images and and paintings sometimes. And artists either intentionally or unintentionally use that um, to to cheat the brain. And so sometimes, you know, when we look at these things, you know, when you know you're looking for, it's hysterical how wrong some of the things are in paintings. But you don't notice it at a casual glance. Uh, but you're talking about sort of trompe l'oeil techniques. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. 
And there's been a raging debate. I mean, David Hockney started this uh, about maybe 10 years ago about the use of optics in art. Uh, and he wrote this beautiful book on, I think it was called The Secrets of the Masters, claiming that, in fact, you know, we knew that um, artists used the camera obscura, uh, but he was claiming that it was much more widespread. And that, I mean, he didn't call it cheating, of course, but that really a lot of the paintings were, you know, the underpinnings of it were actually came from images. He's and talking about a raging debate as to whether that's true or not. He's talking about some of the perspectival tricks of the, exactly. uh, the Renaissance masters uh, using optical devices to sort of capture that exactly uh, that sort of uh, geometry. Yeah, right. Right. I remember when that book came out. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. I mean, it's a beautiful book, and I'm a huge fan of his work, also. Yeah, and and he's actually a, a real skeptic when it comes to photography. Yeah. In fact, I guess you would probably agree with some of his judgments about photography. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah. Well, honey, it's been really eye-opening to talk to you. It's been fascinating. And tell us again uh, the name of your website. Uh, it's uh, 4 and 6, the number 4 spelled out, and 6 spelled out, dot com. Great. I'm going to go there right away. All right, Robert. Really good to talk to you. Honey Fareed is a professor of computer science at Dartmouth College. And, uh, by the way, the master photo retoucher that he mentioned, who is the subject of a 2008 New Yorker article, that's Pascal Dongin. And also, uh, by the way, Hani Farid's website, 4and6.com, uh, has a page on it called Photo Tampering Throughout History. That URL is 4and6.com slash photo hyphen tampering hyphen history. And you can always check us out on our website at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. I got all A's on my report card. At least the one I showed my dad And here's a note from Cameron Diaz Saying I'm the best she's ever had I got the girl of my dreams To finally break up with Eugene when she saw those pictures so obscene of Eugene all tied up in bed with her dear old Aunt Eileen. I got Photoshop and I just can't stop. I just copy, paste, and I drag and drop. And everything in my life seems so much better.